Hi, my name's Autumn and I'm a counselor for Royal Family Kids Camp. When I was six, given my mom's circumstances of being in and out of jail, suffering from drug abuse, postpartum depression, it was ultimately a choice to go to Moose Heart or end up in the foster care system. Besides being really nervous and scared and just like not knowing what to expect, but it was also exciting and kind of like a new chance. So my first like huge experience on that Royal Family Kids Camp was actually before I even got on the bus. I met another camper who was in my cabin who actually happens to be like my like lifelong best friend. When me and Alexis first came to camp, we were very similar in the sense that like we were both the first sibling who had younger brothers, didn't have the best family life. I think Juliana was not only like a camp counselor, but also kind of like a bigger sister to us in a sense. She was a good role model, like somebody that we looked up to, that we could have fun with, that we could talk to. The most important part of camp that really stuck with me as I was a kid was just like noticing like that the same people showed up every single summer to serve God, but to also be there for kids that are in need and can really use like a week of fun and love. Over the years of attending Royal Family, like obviously there was a really big sense of family, community, and friendship, but it also made like going to church and learning about God like a fun thing. Royal Family made it interactive and made it feel special in the sense that like teaching children that they're royal and that they have meaning and value at a young age I think is really important and meaningful. Filling that gap in between camp, you know, waiting until the next summer, Juliana and I would write letters, she would send me Christmas cards, and that was something that I think really like strengthened our relationship and you know let me know as a child like oh this isn't just my counselor at camp like this is someone that cares about me and loves me year-round just like you know god would do or a family does you know like their love doesn't just stop Hello. i've always thought that you were special and you always held like a very deeply special place in my heart and only getting to see you once a year i've you know wanted you to have something to that you could look back on all year and like know that you are always gonna be on my mind, you're always gonna be part of my life and my thoughts and my prayers. My dearest Autumn without an end, Lynn. <laughs> I didn't put an end? Wow. If there's ever a time I can't be with you, never forget how much you, how much I love and care about you. You are a beautiful young woman who has fully captured my heart. You're on my mind every day. You never leave my heart and I have your Italian bracelet with me as a reminder. No matter what, I'll always see you again. You're so wonderful. Everybody in my life knows about you because you have such an impact on me. Love, love you forever, your sister Juliana. I think volunteers for Royal Family Kids Camp, especially the counselors, you know, the impact that they have on the campers that they might not necessarily realize is really big.
I decided to come back and be a counselor because again, I know how much impact it had on me as a child. It really is like a family. Like there's people that have been there for years and years. There's people that are just starting. So it's really cool to come back to the same people who are there for the kids, but also for God, because they know that there's a reason why they're being called to come back every year and volunteer. This summer uh, will mark the 20th anniversary of Royal Family Kids Camp here in the, the Fox Valley area and Chapel Street's involvement in that and um, the, the impact that this group of people in this ministry has had is incredible. In fact, there's almost no better way to kind of tee up what we're going to be talking about today, the passage that we're going to be looking at. And even the theme of, of why it's called Royal Family Kids Camp, why the kids are called royal is all based in what we're going to read in Genesis 1 um, today. And really the only limiting factor that, that we have in, with regards to how many kids we have or the primary limiting factor uh, that we can take to camp this summer is how many volunteers that we have. And this is a great way to spend a week of your summer. You will, you will not be disappointed. Um, it can be hard, it can be challenging, but there's a spot for everybody. Whether you have like um, experience or uh, a degree in kind of the socialist, socialism, uh, not socialism. <laughs> what am I trying to say? Uh, social work, yeah. Socialism, everybody's welcome. Um, <sighs> I don't even know how to recover now, like, yeah. It's just like my brain is like, where do you go? If, if you are a, um, like there's, there's a role for like grandparents to come and be grandparents to the kids. If you want to be one of the camp counselors, you can be a camp counselor. They need help with like nurses at camp for the week. There is a spot for you there is what I'm trying to say. And we would love to have you involved. In fact, Glenn, you can see throughout the room, our, our royal family team is all wearing their, their t-shirts, their purple gear. Glenn will be out in the lobby afterwards. Can I just encourage you, stop and get more information. Uh, stop and ask, like, what does this look like? What does it take to be involved? This is, is real life-on-life uh, -life ministry, and, and it is changing the course of, of people's stories, and we would love to have you be a part of it. Um, well, now that I got through that, okay, um, I want you to think for a moment about that song that comes on in the radio, that comes on the radio when you're driving in the car, and when it does, like, you automatically turn up the volume. Like, you're like, oh yeah, right? Like, that song that, like, you've probably had the embarrassing moment when you're like rocking out in the car at a stoplight and then you look and like somebody in the car next to you staring at you like what's going on in there like that song for you you got it in your mind now think of like your favorite part of that song now how many of you thought of dream on by aerosmith <laughs> me neither i um I, I don't know what it like my kids know like when that song comes on like, it's going to get loud in there. And, like, if you know the song, if you're familiar with it, there's, like, a part at the end when that, that title keeps getting repeated. He keeps, Stephen Tyler keeps singing, uh, Dream, I'm not going to do it. But then, 
and then it's like it goes up like he hits that next octave right and you feel like in that moment of the song you feel like it's all been leading it's all been building to this point in the song and you're just you know rocking out in the car we're at that point in genesis we're at that point where again we've been as we've been talking about this like we're at the point where this song in Genesis, it, it, it reads to us, it feels like it's all been leading to this point. We've talked about this pattern and repetition that the author employs to describe God's creative activity. How it's designed to reveal to us his creation, his power, and his glory, and ultimately the love of the God who spoke it all into existence. There's been a rhythm to it and a beauty as we moved through the days of creation and then halfway through day six right there's this octave change the author breaks this pattern that he's been using throughout each of these days as god now speaks humanity into creation and not only does he speak humanity into creation, but on this aspect of creation, he embeds in it, he places on it the very image of God. As we recited together, as he looks at what he has created, instead of, of seeing it and saying, this is good, he now looks at the totality of it, the culmination of his creative work in forming those who bear his image. But now he says, it is very good. If you remember last week when we concluded the service, we had been studying days uh, four or five and the, the first half of day six last week. And in days one through three, right, we talked about how God creates the canvas and then days four through six, he's, he's painting, he's filling it full of life and he's given it this mandate to, to multiply, to reproduce, like it's designed for life to flourish. And now in, in day six, Halfway through, the rhythm changes. In Psalm 8, you remember, we ended the service with this. David is looking at, he's considering creation. And we stopped halfway through where David asked himself the question, like, what is, what is humanity that you are mindful of? And given all this, everything we see around us, where, how do we fit in this? I want to I pick things back right up there in Psalm 8. Because David answers this question. So, Psalm 8, verse 3, he says, When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is a human being that you remember him? A son of man that you look after him. So there's the, the question David wrestles with. And then he answers it in verse 5. You made him a little less than God and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands, and you put everything under his feet, all the sheep and oxen, as well as the animals in the wild, the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea that pass through the currents of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how, magnific how magnificent is your name in all the earth. I think the power of those words, what David is considering, what he's pondering, it rings so powerfully because we exist in a culture and in a, a time, and in this is probably true ever since Genesis chapter 3. But 
We exist in a time where we so quickly divide ourselves based on any number of identities that we claim. Whether it be our race and ethnicity, our political affiliation, our social and economic status, religion, religious expression and belief, gender and sexuality, we could go on and on and on, and there are a million ways that we divide and categorize each other. We gather in our our tribes and we compete with each other in order to advance my group and suppress or oppress the others. In order to be lifted up, inevitably somebody else has to be pushed down. All the time neglecting a fundamental truth that supersedes all of it. A truth that applies to every man, woman, and child that has ever or will ever exist. A truth that crosses every boundary and identity and affiliation. That every single one of us is marked by the very image of God without exception. And for you and I, that has implications. And that's what we want to consider this morning. Let's flip over to Genesis chapter 1. We're getting now to the end of this, this first chapter in our study of, of the beginning of this story, the gospel in Genesis. And now we pick things up halfway through day six of creation. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the very image of God. He created them male and female, and God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and everything that crawls on earth. God also said, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you, for all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky, and for every creature that crawls on the earth. Have everything having the breath of life in it, I have given every, every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. Evening came, and then morning, the sixth day. Now notice there as we read those, that text, right, notice how the pattern of creation has changed. Last week when we were in 4 or 5 and in the first half of 6, we heard that phrase repeated over and over and over again. That when God created, he created according to its kind. But it's completely absent in, in the second half of, of day 6. When God speaks humanity into creation. Why? Because now God is creating according to his kind. Now he's doing something new. There is a number of ways that, that we could process this and, and far more implications of this than we're going to dive into this morning. But I want to highlight a couple, couple things. And first, when we think about the image of God, we need to understand that we have been uniquely created. We have been uniquely created. I love it when, when somebody sees one of my 
my three daughters and says something like, oh, I see, I see your dad in you. I see, like, I see in your smile or I see in your expression, whatever it's fact, just to kind of make my case. I love to take little selfies with, with my daughters. They love it too. Um, <laughs> and, and so that's my oldest, Emma. We we're going to, she bought me tickets to the Ohio State Northwestern game this fall, so she, she gets me. Um, my middle daughter, Lainey, we got to see them yesterday. We drove up to, uh, to Michigan to visit both of them at school and then drove back in a blizzard. Uh, so I got filled up by seeing them and got totally depleted by making the drive home. And then my youngest daughter, Naomi, when somebody, when somebody recognizes something in them and says, like, that reminds you of, of your, your dad. Like, I love that. And I think God feels very similar. That when, when somebody sees something in us that, that recognizes him in us and is able to acknowledge it. See, I think for us, it's, it's easy to assume that when we read Genesis chapter 1, that, that it's introducing to this original audience who's hearing this or reading this, this radically new idea. And in, in, in a way, it is. But it's also, it's also true that in the cultures that surrounded this part of the world, right, in that time, there, there was an awareness or a familiarity with this idea of the image of God. But they also understood that it did not apply to them. Right? In, in the Surrounding civilizations, they were all predominantly ruled by a, a king or a pharaoh, somebody that had claimed kind of ultimate authority in their world. And so if you would recall from when we were working through Genesis 1 last week, it reveals how God's got ownership and authority over all of his creation. Right? This is very similar to how the ancient kind of rulers and, and kings talked about their own place in the world, that it sort of all belonged to them and they were authoritative over it. And they would use this phrase or this idea of being someone who bared the image of God. They as king, they as Pharaoh were the, the, the image bearer of the divine and as such they had full autonomy, full authority, and full power to do with what they pleased. So it was primarily used to remind you of your place, to subjugate or to control. They viewed themselves as absolute, absolute rulers with absolute power. So now imagine this concept here of, of God's creation being formed. And again, like if, if we juxtaposed the creation narratives it, against each other in the time, one born out of like violence and Humanity is created to sort of be slaves to, to the gods versus the Genesis, the Genesis narrative where humanity is created out of order and out of love and, and given this divine purpose, right? It was an idea they knew. It was just an idea that didn't apply to them. And this actually, you see this all the way up into the time of Jesus. You remember there's this instance where Jesus is... is um, speaking with, he's, he's trying to be kind of like caught in a verbal trap by some Pharisees. And they bring him a coin and they say, well, should we 
pay taxes, and, and which is, was a hot button issue, you know, that apparently has not changed over the years. And, and they're trying to catch Jesus taking a side so that no matter what side he takes, like the other side's going to be angry at him. And the coin, if you remember, it's got Caesar's inscription image and inscription on it. And if you go to Mark chapter 12, we can flip over there real quick. Mark chapter 12. This is, this is the account of this. Verse 13. <coughs> then they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to trap him in his words. And when they came, they said to him, Teacher, we know you're truthful and you don't care what anyone thinks. Nor do you show partiality, but you teach the way of God truthfully. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. They brought a coin. Whose image and inscription is this? He asked. Caesar's, they replied. And Jesus told them, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God. And they were utterly amazed at him. Right? So on a coin that literally said Caesar, right, son of the divine Augustus, like son of God on it, Jesus is, is very much hitting on this same thing here. And he flips the narrative entirely. And he says, give, give to Caesar the things that have Caesar's image on it, but where have I placed my image? Where is, where is God's image? On you. And, and not only on you, but on Caesar. Right? Do you see what he's doing here? He's like, that's fine. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. I own Caesar. Like he's under my authority, whether or not he recognizes it or, or not. And so this is what's so radical about Genesis chapter 1. Right? Instead of this designation being reserved for a king or a pharaoh, it's used to describe all of humankind. So back in verse 27, so God created man in his own image. That's the Hebrew word Adam. That, that's like mankind, like humanity. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. And not only is this designation ascribed now to all of humanity, what's even beyond that is expressly applied to both male and female. Right? Another just radically culturally altering view of the value and dignity of humanity. I was reading, uh, a friend referred me to a, a Jewish uh, rabbi commentator who wrote an article on the image of God, um, and Rabbi Jonathan Sachs was talking about this passage, and he said this. He said, understood thus, Genesis 1, 26 and 27 is not so much a metaphysical statement about the nature of a human person as it is a political protest against the very basis of hierarchical class or caste-based societies, whether in ancient or modern times. That is what, that's what that is what makes it the most incendiary idea in the Torah. In some fundamental sense, we are all equal in dignity and ultimate worth, for we, all, we are all in God's image, image regardless of color, culture, or creed. I, I, 
I would contend that he is making a statement about our, our each individual person. I think it's both of those things. And this is exactly the point. The designation of image bearer has tremendous implications for how we see and understand and think about ourselves. Right? To understand that each of us bears the image of God has implications about our own sense of self-worth, our place in the world. It has huge implications for how we see and understand and think about each other, about the people sitting around you right now, the community that exists. It has huge implications for the way that we see and understand and think about every human being without exception. No exclusion. I was reading this week some, some book on church history, and it was talking about the great persecution in like a, the second and third century. So in that window before Constantine became the emperor and, and, and Christianity became sort of acceptable in the Roman Empire, there was this, this time of just intense persecution. And um, Christians would oftentimes lose their families, their, their, their jobs. Sometimes they were tortured and, and many died as a result of, of their faith. And some of the early church leaders would, would write to instruct these Christians on how do you endure in the midst of this? How do you, how do you deal with this? In fact, there was one uh, Roman sort of governor who wrote to the emperor. He had just been put in place and he was writing to the emperor to say, I'm persecuting the Christians. I'm doing what I'm, I'm supposed to do. I'm not entirely sure why. Like what exactly, remind me again what they're doing that is why we're killing them. Um, like he could look across and he'd say like, these people seem to exist peacefully and, and relationally in community. Like I'm not sure what's going on, but I'm, I'm doing what you told me. And so the early church fathers, they would write to the church and, and they would give them encouragement on how do you endure this? And you know what the primary fundamental encouragement was? Remember that the person that is torturing you bears the image of God. Like that, that, that's why we're not going to respond violently. That's not why, that's why we're, we're not going to have this uprising. Because these people too bear the image of God. Like that, to process that kind of persecution through that lens struck me as so powerful. And I think it's one of the primary ways that reasons that, that why Christianity endured in the midst of all of it. Right? Humanity is set apart as unique in all of creation. And this uniqueness is endowed in every human being with God-given dignity, value, and meaning. It's true for every single one of us. It's true for every single one around us. And it's true of everyone who's ever existed. Right? This, by the way, this element of theology forms and shapes so much of the church's position historically on so many topics. Certainly amongst them is, is pro-life and race, uh, women's rights, all these different things that have, have been formed out of an understanding that this person bears the image of God and therefore is worthy of, of dignity and respect and and justice. Secondly, then we discover now that God is, is, is putting us to, un, to work. We are uniquely charged. We're uniquely charged, uniquely called, uniquely purposed. Look again back in, in Genesis. 
said in verse 28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and every creature that crawls on earth. God also said, look, I've given you every seed bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seeds. This will be food for you. All the, for all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky, for every creature that crawls on the earth, everything having the breath of life in it, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. So God gives us a job to do, and then he gives us everything that we need to be sustained in this work. So look at the way God begins to shape our role within creation. Notice the sequence of authority that unfolds here. In Genesis 1, right, we get this image of God just standing over all of it. Authoritative over everything. Owner of everything. His perfect creation. And then within his creation, he places these, these image bearers. And these image bearers are given the responsibility of stewarding. Right? We are the ones who, according to Psalm 8, have been made a little lower than the gods. A little lower than God. And this charge that he gives us is to creatively rule and direct his creation for his glory and for life to flourish, as, as we talk about it in the New Testament, for his kingdom to advance. Now, just like free word association here for a second. When you hear the words subdue, subdue and rule, right? What is your, is your immediate reaction to those words negative or positive? Negative, generally, or I guess it depends on where you're at in that, right? right these, these, oftentimes, these words evoke in our hearts and minds this idea of, of force. Maybe for some even violence or manipulation. But we have to remember that the imagery that we're in here is, is that of a garden. It, what does it mean to subdue a garden? It means you're pulling weeds, and it means you're planting, and it means you're watering, and you're harvesting, right? When I was um, in Ecuador a lot, I would take kids down into the jungle, and, and where we would stay, they had these cabins, and there was this cabin kind of down by the water, and then there were these cabins up on the side of the mountain, right in the middle of the jungle. And it was, you would go up there, it was like a 15-minute hike, and there was a view in the morning that I'll never forget. Um, overlooking the jungle and one year when we were there we were staying in the cabins and we were all down kind of on the ground and I said how come none of us are staying up in the cabins up on the on the hill and they said they let the jungle take it um, which means that if you don't go and take machetes and hack it back it within months it'll be completely overrun by by the jungle and, and, and that's what it means to subdue. Like, if you've ever had a garden that you've let, let go for a season, right? You've got some work in front of you. Like, this is the imagery that Genesis is giving us, right? They, in other words, our job, our charge is to cultivate and tend creation for God's ultimate intended purposes. To be a place where life flourishes and all that is created to, to know and to experience the love of God. And then we're given this mandate in the midst of this to multiply and to fill the earth. Right? For this express purpose. 
So humanity is kind of placed in this scene, and we're serving a sort of middle management here. We're acting under the authority of God to do the work of God for the ultimate purpose of God. Let me say that again. We are here acting under the authority of God to do God's intended work for his ultimate purposes, that life would flourish and that he would be glorified. This is the work, by the way, that Jesus left us as the church when he's talking about his kingdom, the way his kingdom functions in this world. And we're going to get to this part in the story where we see how our design purpose became compromised when humanity decided to to discern for themselves what was good and what was evil right we turned away from god's life-giving purpose so now our experience of this when we look across the world and and we see everything around us we get this mixed view of everything and we we can look out and we can see and we can see image bearers we can see time when people are accurately and 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 fulfilling their call to bear the image of God. And then we can look right next to it and see his image being denied. And here's the thing. That dividing line, that that doesn't exist out there. It exists down the center of every single one of our hearts. Where where we both bear his image and, and deny it. Where we act contrary to that purpose. Sometimes we see those things right alongside each other. We can see horrible evil played out. And then somebody come in and respond with generosity and compassion. Remember that when Jesus arrived on the scene, he gave us this picture, this image of what it, what it looks like to be truly or fully human. And according to Jesus, when Jesus is describing this subduing, this ruling, this authority that he has, right? he said it looks like serving. He said, if you want to be great in my kingdom, you have to become a servant of all. And then thirdly, we see what it means that, that humanity has been created to be uniquely capable. Uniquely capable. There's this, I think, inevitable question that that. I ask when we talk about the image of God and we consider that and that is in what ways or how are we like God? How does this reveal itself? And I think there's just a couple hints here in Genesis that I just want to highlight real quickly. First, I think we discover that we were created for relationship. We were created for relationship. Look at verse 26 one more time. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and the rule of the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and the livestock and the whole earth and the creatures that crawl on the earth. And there's all kinds of debate and discussion about what God is saying when the plural is used there. And, and I can, I will grant you that I don't know that the original audience understood this to be a reference to the Trinity. But I also would say, I, I don't think that that means it's not there. My point is that I think my point is that God existed in, in perfect relational unity to himself, and he created humanity to experience that relationship. Not only with him, but also with each other. 
By that I mean that we do not function according to our design in isolation. That, that, that we are meant to exist. This is, um, well, I could go down a whole rabbit trail here, but this is why I think being together in real space and time matters to us. This is why I think we gather together in community on a regular basis because we were designed for it. Right? We were meant for community. It forms the way that we relate to our creator and the way we relate to each other. And then secondly, I think we were created with a will. And, and this is, again, there's all sorts of conversations around this. But I'm, briefly, I mean this. <coughs> we are more than our instinct. Right? When we see the animal world, the natural world, right? if an animal is hungry, it eats. It doesn't think to itself, like, counting calories right now, I could, you know, it just acts on instinct or like, I want to go out with my friends later and we're going to eat, so I'm not, I'm not going to eat now in order to eat with them later. It doesn't, it, it operates according to its instinct, right? But we have been given a will. And I would argue that this is essential, a will is essential in what it means to love and to be loved. That it was God's will, in fact, to create, and that he created us with a will because we are loved and because we have the capacity to love. And that requires a will. And there's more. Right? We could talk about our capacity to perceive beauty. We could talk about the way that we create, we reflect him in, in our ability to, to make and form and create. We could think about the way that we think conceptually. Worship, right? It's all born out of, of his image. And so as we conclude today, I want, to just, I want us to just take a moment to reflect on the image of God and how that's seen in the faces of men, women, and children. So this is just a short video of just some pictures from our Chapel Street family and, and, and just tune your heart to, to see God's image reflected in his people. Thank you.
There is beauty in God's creation and the way that he has embedded himself in each one of us. You know what would be kind of ruin the moment? Is what if that video was faces of people who hurt you? Faces of, of people that we didn't like and that coworker that you can't stand. Like the same would be true. All of those people would, would bear the image of God. And for us, if, if we're here and we're saying, okay, I want to follow Jesus, right? That has implications for us. Let's pray together as the worship team comes. Father, we do just, Lord, want to pause and recognize your image placed on each of us. Lord, the work that you have given to do. And so, Jesus, when we have failed to see the image of God and the people that you have put around us, Lord, forgive us. Lord, when we have failed to defend the image of God in others, would you forgive us? Jesus, when I forget that you've placed the image of God in me and I operate out of an inferior identity, Lord, would you forgive me? Remind me again the ultimate worth and value, the dignity that you have placed in each one of us, the work that you have given us to do, that we might ultimately function according to your great purpose of tending to a place where you have designed it for life to flourish and for people to know they're loved by you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, fellow image bearers, um, this is the work he's left us with, to cultivate his creation for, for life to flourish and for people to know they're loved. I hope we do that for each other, and I hope we do that for the world around us. Hey, if you've got two minutes, stop by the royal uh, family kiosk out here. You, you will um, want to know more about their work they do. It's a great application to today's content sermon. So um, if we can pray with you, it's a privilege to do that and now receive this morning's benediction. Go now in the name of Jesus Christ, who has called us to bear his image. May we do it well, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.